0: So as we're going through hell week i'm getting stressed to limits that i've never been stressed to before because that's what buds is designed to do you either choose me or we and they want the people that choose we because it's a team and in combat you need your team you need the guy to do left and right not the me i was going through my own little injuries at the time and they told me hey look you're going to get rolled back That's Ryan Hendrickson, U.S. Army Special Forces soldier, decorated war hero, and best-selling author. And I said, I'm not rolling back. I'm done. And so I gave up on myself. And it took me forever to understand that that failure at BUDS, because I was so disgusted with what happened there, that when I went through Special Forces training, I never was going to go back to that disgusting part of my life again. And so it actually paved the way for me to become a Green Beret. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and
1: CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Ryan Hendrickson to discuss the importance of being a team player, how to develop a mindset of extreme ownership, and why failure
0: beats regret. The difference, I think, between quitting on yourself and not making the cut is this. If you gave it everything you possibly had, and that's what I learned from Buds, if I give it every single thing I have, leave it all out there, I have nothing left to give. If I don't make the cut, then I know that I gave it all I had and I will hold my head high. I will not quit on myself like I did at Buds. If I don't make this, if I gave it everything that I have, mentally, physically, emotionally, everything, if I leave it all out there, then there are no regrets. And if, Everybody who is just left standing in the end is going to get a green beret, then it's not special. That's coming up
1: on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. (music) Ryan Hendrickson is the definition of a hero. As a U.S. Army Special Forces soldier, his many decorations include the silver star, four bronze stars, a purple heart, and an Army Commendation Medal with Valor. He's also the author of Tip of the Spear, an inspiring true story of how he was medically retired after stepping on an IED and his incredible return to active duty. I began our conversation by asking Ryan how he came to the decision to share his story with the world.
0: I was in Afghanistan uh, 2010, 2012, so not a big deal there. And then 16, 17, 18, 19, and then as a contractor, 20 and 21. So that's a lot of years in Afghanistan. After the 16 trip, some stuff happened. And I was really trying to figure it out. You know, you can go to a bar with your buddies. Like if you and I went to a bar and it's like, yeah, man, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then we talk about it and it feels good for a minute. But then you go home to your life and your family and I go home to my life and my family and it's all dead air. I had a buddy and he's actually the chaplain of um, some special forces group. And he said, you know, have you ever thought about writing? <laughs> yeah, writing. Okay, whatever. I majored in you know, writing in like the third grade. And he goes, no, 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 serious. Like some people actually, because you're not letting go of it, you're just taking it from one place and putting it to another. And you can revisit that place anytime you want. So the 2017 deployment, I was just kind of in a dark place. So let me check out this little writing thing he's talking about, let's see. And uh, just started typing and typing and typing and typing and typing. And then it turned into days and And weeks and months and next thing you know, I just hundreds of pages of just stuff and it's just pouring out. And then I went back and I kind of organized it to the way, you know, the book reads. And I was just like, holy cow, that feels good. And I can come and get it anytime I want. But with all that work put into it, we're humans. So I was like, I wonder what people would think about this. So I had a couple of buddies read it. And if you want a brutally honest answer, ask another Green Beret because you're going to get a brutally honest answer. And I figured, you know, oh, I'm going to get the normal, the raz, But no, my two friends came back and they're like, dude, that's me. Like that story is me. It's like, okay. So then family, they're like, yeah, people need to read this. It actually went from, I don't know if there's such thing called writing therapy. Maybe, I don't know. If not, I would really like to... uh, trademark it or something but yeah I'd really like to do that but I, I think there is because it, it was awesome for me and I took all that and got the courage from something my dad said to me and I was like I don't want to release this I don't want it to be a book because I don't want people to know that kind of stuff about me he goes wow aren't you just a selfish asshole it's like what and he goes yeah if this book could help one person but you're gonna hold it back because you think you're so cool that people are gonna judge you by this. Check it out there, boy, you're not that cool. And your story, like this story can reach somebody, but you're so worried about what people are gonna think about you that you don't want it to help anybody. He goes, you need to get over yourself. And it sounds like your dad has been pretty instrumental. I mean, even going Huge. back to childhood, you know, mm-hmm. if you gotta speak to your upbringing, maybe some of the things that have kind of shaped you. My dad came from a pretty low point in life. Um, Even from when he was brought up, uh, he was one of six boys. They lived in a shack, dirt floor, whatnot like that, in a place, uh, it's crazy, it's called Pollywog Springs in Oregon. Those aren't excuses to be an asshole, but it helped shape his life. And then a couple tours in Vietnam, and then coming back and booze running his life, and he got to a point to where, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going to fix things his way of fixing things was he was on his way. We were in the truck and we were driving over to my uncle Steve's house, which wasn't really a step up from my dad because my uncle Steve was an alcoholic too, but uh, driving over to drop my sister and I off. And then he was going to go out and he was going to shoot himself in the head. That was the night that he uh, was approached by a guy who ended up being a Christian and a preacher and that was the night my dad was saved. It's like the come to Jesus moment, literally. <laughs> <laughs> literally, right before, he, yeah. And so that's what kind of started him on the path he was from the lowest point in life. And then if I could have just looked back on my dad's life and understood like, wow, he um, was at this point, he you know was saved, and then life started going good again, then we got hit and we got hit and we got hit. And then I would have understood like, hey, look, wow, this is crazy, but life's not fair. Hmm. And the minute you can figure out that life's not fair is when you start to actually enjoy life. And when you figure out that life can be very brutal and you accept it and you understand it and you know that you're not, like nobody owes you anything and you're not entitled to anything, that's when you can actually start to enjoy life. But before then, and it took me year. <laughs> I mean, embarrassingly, I mean, years to figure out that I'm not owed a damn thing. And all I had to do was look back on my dad's life and my life growing up, and I could have figured that kind of stuff out. I imagine like, kind of looking
1: back now, you look at it through a different lens, but Mm -hmm. growing up as a kid, I mean, you describe a point where you're living in a tent, which you say you didn't really mind the tent. It was more about, I think, if some of the kids in
0: school saw saw that you were living in a tent, I guess (laughs) if you could speak to that. We hit some low points. I mean, the, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I, I'm always borderline with, oh, you know, poor me. I grew up poor or something like that. But I've been around the world and I've seen poor. I didn't grow up bad at all. But yes, for I lived in a tent for about a year. Let's be realistic here. This wasn't a little camping tent. It was a nice tent. I mean, it could fit like five, six people. It wasn't bad. But um definitely... That was a chip on my shoulder for a long time until I started to understand that, number one, life's not fair. Number two, I looked around and I was like, oh, I don't really have it that bad. It shaped a lot of my childhood just because that's not normal. You know what I mean? Even in school, I know you talk about
1: playing football, being on the wrestling team Mm -hmm. and having this level of toughness, almost like this resilience, where at one point you say, your coach said that you were too stupid to quit, which could have been taken as an insult, but you you (laughs) wore it as a badge of honor. Where, Where do you think that toughness and resilience came from?
0: The too stupid to quit part, I think, is just because I literally am just too stupid to quit. But I think that toughness, well, I don't think, I know that toughness came from my dad because At an early age, whether I understood it or not, I understood that nothing's free and you have to work for what you get and no one owes you anything and you're not going to get anything unless you work for it. In my life, I look back and there's times when I've quit on myself. And so it's like, yeah, you're too stupid to quit maybe at wrestling, but I do have points in my life where I was like, wow, I could have done so much more, but I just gave up. So yes and no, but the too stupid to quit part, I think that's just... That's the wrestling thing. And my coach is like, man, you're getting your head tore off over there. And the guy just got tired. And I was like, yeah, I win. He goes, well, you didn't really win. You just outlasted. And I'm like, yeah. Wait, is that good? He's like, you're dumb. I was like, all right. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I
1: yeah. mean, there's something to be said for that because yeah. that sort of resilience and toughness, just sticking in there long enough, mm-hmm. that seems to pay off later too, right? I mean, yep. anytime we encounter any challenges, it's, I mean, sometimes you just stick with it. I mean, as simple as don't quit you ultimately end up getting there. So mm-hmm. there's that component. Now, I want to talk about kind of the journey into into the military. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, I mean, you had, you had your dad, who was a veteran as well, but yeah. was it always going to be the military? Or do you have other things that you considered?
0: From a young age, I was pretty much geared for the military, whether it was, you know, out out playing army in the woods at, you know, young age, whatnot like that. My dad had pretty much, my mindset was, was military. Now, as I got to high school, you know, I, I, I did. You know, I started focusing on girls and whatnot like that. Same thing everybody does. And my dad's like, look, dude, you're 18. You're graduating soon. I refuse to let you be that 40-some odd year old man at the gas station talking about your homecoming game, your senior year, you know, of high school at 40 some odd years old. He's like, you can do whatever you want. You can go work a job. You can go to college, but let's face it, you're not really college material. You can join the military, highly recommend it, but you can't stay here. Because if I let you stay here, you'll never leave. So you got to go, dude. You know, because his belief was hey, look, it's four years of your life. Go serve your country. And when you get done, then figure out what you want to do. But you're 18. You don't know shit. You're a kid. So go join the military, figure it out. And then four years turned into eight years, turned into, you know, 12 and whatnot. Next thing you know, I'm like, wow, I to where I'm sitting right now and I have no idea what I want to do when I grow up, you know? So when you joined, you you went Navy Mm -hmm. and then I think you
1: described at one point you're thinking I might be on just working on board a submarine (laughs) and I think two seconds later, you're like, I don't
0: like tight and closed spaces. Oh my gosh. I made it to like the first tour of a submarine in Groton, Connecticut. And I was like, nope, nope, can't do this at all. And glad we found out now because uh, we don't want you in our community. So it was straight out to the surface fleet. So even just starting out, a lot of the, I mean, you're working these
1: long days, mm-hmm. like, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16 hour days. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things you're doing, I mean, it's just a lot of like cleanup and so mm-hmm. on. What was your approach towards that? Like, kind of what was your attitude towards what could be
0: seen as grunt work, that sort of mm-hmm. thing? So I was a deckhand, a bosun's mate. Amazing job. But yeah, you're a grunt and you are you you're doing the basic work on a ship and whatnot like that that has to get done but for me it was easy because it's how i grew up farm work logging and so for me it was an easy transition over but if i was looking at some of the other um rates out there i was like man that guy's a sonar technician and man that guy works on radars and stuff like that i was like i'll just go over here and chip this paint and put some primer on it so it doesn't rust. And, you know, that's, that was my world, but I, I loved it. It was, a, it was a great life because I learned so much. And being a bosun's mate is, I mean, I believe, I know somebody listening to this may contradict it, but it's the core of the Navy, in my opinion. I loved it. Had a blast. So horrible, but had a blast.
1: <laughs> so you go through this, you kind of finish this four-year commitment in the Navy, mm-hmm. and then you get out back into civilian life. And I think you you was reading, you're like, you're bartending, you're doing this type of stuff. I think (laughs) going back into civilian life, that was probably, you know, a bit of a change. You didn't like it very much.
0: No, no, I didn't like it at all. So I tried my hand at being a civilian. Yeah, I got out April, 2001. So 9-11 hadn't kicked off yet and whatnot. And when 9-11 happened, then my wheels started turning In But, you know, my relationship at the time, and I really thought that it would be, We're going to go in, bomb the crap out of them, and it'll be over with. And so I'll just continue doing what I'm doing. But I just, I couldn't wrap my head around the lackadaisical mindset. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, it's 9.15. I'm not that late. You're still late. (laughs) What are you talking about? I mean, there's a time. Well, I mean, is anything really going on between 9 and 9.15? You're still late. (laughs) I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. And I couldn't understand, but I didn't have, I guess you would call it maybe like the negotiation skills that I learned later on in life. And so I would be confrontational right off the bat. And so for me, it's like, yeah, this guy is wrong, but you can't threaten to fight everybody because that doesn't do good in the workplace. You know, it's like, oh, man, we were just so drunk last night. That's why I'm late. Yeah, so was I, but I'm here on time. I couldn't understand it. At that point in my life, I didn't really play well with others because I was still looking for a purpose.
1: And are you, you're the type of person that just likes just a
0: lot of structure and, like, that sort of thing. Is that something that you like to have? I thrive in those environments. Like, my dad was very structured. You're going to do it this way because I said so. I pay the bills. I put food in your mouth. If you don't like it, well, start paying bills and then you can have a say-so. And it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I, I actually thrive With structure, direction. It's like uh, if somebody can give me a task condition and a standard, I'm fine. If I have all three of those, you're going to get the best Ryan Hendrickson. That's a military thing, task condition standard. It's weird for a green beret to say, but if I'm in an environment where I have direction that is given to me, like, hey, this is what needs to be accomplished, and these are your right and left limits, and this is what you have to work with, I'm good to go. If someone's like, hey, what do you think about this? Let's do something. I'm going to struggle, and then I'll research who has done this something before and their task condition standard. Then I'll set my own task condition standard and then accomplish a mission, But if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I I think
1: about just even from a leadership standpoint, Mm -hmm. um, when you're leading people, that seems like a pretty consistent way to get a desired result, right? Because if you mm-hmm. leave, you know, if there's not boundaries, if there aren't conditions, if it's too open-ended, if the clarity doesn't exist, yep. then you can still get a result, just might not be
0: the result that you want. Yep, and as a leader, if you don't have a set task condition and standard or that clarity's not there, then when the mission is accomplished, but it's not accomplished to what you wanted, you can't go after the team for that because they were missing one of those three, either a task or a condition or a standard. And so as a leader, if you just give them a blanket, like, hey, we need, I would like this to happen, let's make it happen, then when they come up with their, we call it a COA, but their course of action, and it's not to your liking, then again, they didn't have a task condition and standard to go by, so you have to come back to, as a leader, if you want it to be this way, your way, which you can because you're the leader or the CEO or whatever it is, then you have to give those parameters, those right and left limits, those task conditions and standards, or else people aren't mind readers. And I do feel that some leaders suffer because they don't have a set task condition and standard, or they'll promote. I want free thinkers. I want people that will think outside of the box and do X, Y, and Z, which is great, but... You can't have your own standard and expect people to meet that standard if they don't know what that standard is because you told them to think outside the box and be the, you know, I want you painting in the gray. And so that's where I feel a lot of leaders struggle. You know, you either adopt it and you can work with everybody's opinion on or everybody's course of action, their coas in the gray, or you have a set task condition and standard. And this is how I like it. And for me, both are great leadership styles. I just thrive better when I have a task condition and a standard. Because if I don't have it, then I'm going to find out who did it before, find out what their task condition standard was, and I'm going to adopt mine to that because that's just how my brain works.
1: So it's interesting. I actually really appreciate how honest you were in this book because Mm -hmm. there was a lot of things you could have left out or had written it in a way where, it's just wins, and here's all the things that went right, and I made every right decision. Everything was good. It's not life. <laughs> but, but you're honest in there, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of humility. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a part where this was certainly something I think you could have left out. Mm-hmm. book would have been just fine, and it was, I think, your experience when you wanted to be like a naval uh, reservist and going through buds, mm-hmm. right? If you could speak to
0: that. Yeah, so I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Those dudes are hardcore and all that, but what I didn't take into consideration is not everybody's Charlie Sheen on the movie Navy Seals. So when I got to Bud's, I was physically prepared, but I wasn't mentally prepared. And so as we're going through Hell Week, all of a sudden I'm getting stressed to limits that I've never been stressed to before because that's what Bud's is designed to do. You either choose me or we, and they want the people that choose we because it's a team. And in combat, you need your team. You need the guy to the left and right, not the me. You know, I was going through my own little injuries at the time and they told me, hey, look, you're going to get rolled back. And I said, I'm not rolling back. I'm done. And so I gave up on myself and that's one of those points in my life where I'm like, yeah, you quit on yourself right there. Joe Rogan said it best. He said that we are so stuck on our past failures that we can't understand how they built us up for our future successes. And It took me forever to understand that that failure at BUDS, because I was so disgusted with what happened there, that when I went through special forces training, I never was going to go back to that disgusting part of my life again. And so it actually paved the way for me to become a Green Beret. And so, yeah, both extremely tough programs. But if I never had that moment in my life where I was like, God, dude, why did you do that? Then I would never have been able to grow from that still bothers me, it does. But, you know, if everyone who went to Buzz was a Navy SEAL, then it wouldn't be the Navy SEALs. Yeah. Because those dudes, they're, they're hard, they're hard, so.
1: And it's interesting how much the, the mental game plays out here because as you said, you were physically ready. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read, a lot of guys show up and they're like amazing physical specimens, yeah. right? Like they train for this, they think they're gonna do amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you see guys that come in and may not be as physically gifted, but mentally are yep. so much tougher. And it's like at the end of Hell Week, like the ones left standing are typically, if not exclusively, the ones with the mental toughness. Yep,
0: it's probably exclusively because Hell Week is meant to, regardless of what phenomenal athlete you were, because in my class, there were some studs, Division One wrestlers, which is probably, you were probably the epitome of physical fitness, just in my opinion. And yeah, they just, once it came to the mental part of it, once they got out of that part that they had no longer, because for me, what it was is, I controlled everything up until I got to a point to when you're so tired, you're so cold, you're so beat down, you're so chafed, you just ran through the mud to where you no longer have control. And that's when it goes from the me to we part if I could have adopted my mindset to my boat crew, now it's a we instead of a me. And if I could have made it one evolution at a time or just make it to that next meal instead of looking at five straight days of this, then it would have been different, but my mind was really weak. So instead of going back to day one, phase one, I was like, no, I'm not going back. And that was it. But hell week, it's all mental. I don't care what you've done in your past as a stud. You will not go through whole week on physical attributes. It's impossible. About Tuesday night, maybe Wednesday morning, I don't care how physically fit you are, you're done.
1: What's that feeling like when when you tap out, right? I imagine at some point there's like a
0: brief feeling of relief. Mm -hmm. And then was it instant regret right after that? I never got the relief. It was all regret. The minute that I made that decision, I regretted it instantly. There was no relief. And I regretted it for years, years and years and years. And people have talked to me. They're like, why, dude? It's, it's, it's a training program. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's, it has nothing to do with whether it was buds or it was wrestling or special forces or what it was. It had to do with the decision that I made at that point in my life. So you could have been anywhere in any situation in your life. And the decision that I made to quit on myself, that's what bothered me. It wasn't the fact that it was at Buds or if it was here or there. Buds just happened to be the place I was at because it's one of the hardest training pipelines in, in the military. What do
1: you think differentiates people like when they're making a decision to quit something? Like what mm-hmm. what do you think at what point is it a good decision saying, Hey, you, you can quit, no regrets, versus they're about to quit on something that they might regret for the rest of their life?
0: I honestly believe that you're always going to have regrets if you quit. Now, when people go through a course, like with Special Forces, they'll make it all the way through the selection process, so 21 days. Selection is basically a hell week, but it's a long duration. But at the very end, they've made it through all this, and they're still standing at the end, and they're told, hey, look, you're not what we're looking for. Or... You go two and a half years through training. You get the Robin Sage. You finish Robin Sage for the instructors to tell you, hey, look, thank you for trying out. Um, You're not what we're looking for. And that's two and a half years of your life, gone. But the difference, I think, between quitting on yourself and not making the cut is this. If you gave it everything you possibly had, and that's what I learned from Bud's. If I give it every single thing I have, leave it all out there. I have nothing left to give. If I don't make the cut, then I know that I gave it all I had and I will hold my head high. I will not quit on myself like I did at Bud's. And so I learned that lesson, which set me up for success in selection and then further on in the Q course, because selection is not the hardest part of the Q course. Oh no, (laughs) it's not. But it set me up for success further on because I knew, hey, look, if I don't make this, if I gave it everything that I have, mentally, physically, emotionally, everything, if I leave it all out there, then there are no regrets. And if everybody who is just left standing in the end is gonna get a green beret, then it's not special. There has to be that point like, hey man, look, thank you for trying, but you're just not what we're looking for. You didn't make the cut. There has to be that point or else it's not special. And so that's one thing. And then quitting, that means that you could have done more. You could have kept going, but you decided that you were done. I think there's always going to be some sort of, it may not be regret, but questions about stopping before you're actually done or giving it everything you have and you just don't make the cut. And I imagine for
1: the people listening, because there's got to be someone asking, "Like, well, how do I know if I've got more in the tank? Like, you
0: know, when you had more to give, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and you quit. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to die. Like, there are people that die in training, got it. You're probably not going to die. And the military, believe it or not, as chaotic as it seems, um, whether it's Hell Week or it's Selection or PJs and Combat Controllers go through a very horrendous training pipeline too, very physically demanding, Marine Recon, same thing. But they are so regimented. The instructors are held to such a high standard you know, whether it's, we're taking temperatures of water or med checks or whatever it is like in selection, we're constantly talking to you. Like, let me hear you answer the question. It may, but you can't comprehend all that because you're beat down and you're hungry and you're tired. And like the army does something the Navy doesn't do. The army holds food from you. And that's horrible. The army loves to make you hungry and tired and cold, and wet and whatnot. The Navy, you'll be beat down, cold, wet, beat down, tired, but you're going to be fed in the army. they're like, yeah, <laughs> we can hold food too. But um, if you can understand that you're going to be fine, like physically, you will be fine, which is very, very hard to understand that when you're going through those, that mental minefield of the training. But if you understand that, then you're more apt to push even further because if you do drop, you're going to be taken care of. Very rare for people to die in training. It happens, but it's rare.
1: I always think about like the person listening, it's probably someone shaking their head, thinking, why, why do they have to be that intense? Why that level of selection? Why put somebody through that? What happens if you don't go through that level of just training,
0: preparation, that level of intensity? Are you prepared? I believe that when we are cold, wet, tired, hungry, tired, 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 and then you start to train, it's because of combat. And so when you're in a tick or troops in contact or you're in a firefighter or whatnot, the minute that 762 starts cracking, your adrenaline takes over. And people talk about the fight or flight. And you can train fight, but it's very hard to train it. And it's very hard to get as realistic as actual combat in training. But The closest that we can get is they beat you down until there is nothing left of you as a man or a woman, and then you start to train. And the reason for that is is when those rounds start cracking or people start getting hit and you got explosions going off because an ambush is is very scary. I mean, it's initiated by PKM, then RPGs, then mortar fire starts walking in because they go far, then they go near, and then they split the difference. When they split the difference, you're in trouble. But for you to be able to fight through that fog of war, you can't think through it because your mind shuts down and adrenaline takes over. So they call it muscle memory. And then you start to react on all of your training, but it's not training when it was warm. It was perfect. Your muscle memory is from when you were just beat down and you can't even remember how you trained. Like, what did we do? I don't even remember, dude. I was a zombie. But that's when you start training and then all that training kicks in Once that 7.62 starts cracking and RPGs are going off and whatnot like that, that's why special operations is such, in my opinion, rigorous, is because they have to get as close to combat as they can get. And when you're in a special operations community, you're more than likely going to be the ones that are going to deal with the brunt of combat. So that's, again, my belief is why we train the way we do. And at the height of it, because I,
1: I want you to quantify this in the sense when you say beat down mm-hmm. and you're withholding sleep, it's like, is it an all nighter and then withholding food? Like, when's the last time you slept and when's the last time you ate? Like, I
0: guess to put in that scenario, like in that moment. I remember in selection, I think we counted up the total hours we slept. It was a ridiculous amount. It was like getting two hours of sleep a night. And which, is, which probably isn't that bad the first night or the second night. Right. But it's not a straight two hours. Yeah. 15 here, 30 here, you know, because you're constantly moving, you're constant, and then your calorie intake for what your body is actually putting out is so much higher. And I mean, I don't have a, like a, you know, if I was an instructor, I would know because they know exactly like, all right, hey, we need to put them down for this amount. Okay, let's get them up a few flashbangs. We're back going at it again. But going through the training, I mean, <laughs> pulling a 72-hour with three MREs, all the water you can drink. Oh, they'll hydrate you. That's not a problem. The army likes to hydrate you to a point to where it's just obnoxious, but holding food and sleep and just beating you down and holding dry clothes, oh yeah, all day, every day.
1: They didn't impress you, I just, like, once you kind of realized, like, just what the human body could take and really endure. I think, I think a lot of people don't really have an appreciation for mm-hmm. just how much punishment you can undergo and like how long you can go without sleep, without food. Now, your decision making is probably
0: compromised. Yeah. you you know, without a doubt, you're a zombie, but yeah. you're still alive. Yeah, no, the human body can take a lot. It was pretty surprising to me, especially, you know, when the dust cleared at selection and we had just finished our 33 mile trek. And it was like, all right, dust is cleared. We're waiting to figure out who got selected and who was a non select and whatnot, like that. I was looking back to the best of my ability, because again, we were pulling like probably like a 48 hour. But I do remember thinking was like, "Wow, Like I had no idea I could do that. I just kept moving, just right, left, right, left, right, left, right. When I went through, uh, we had a trek. And so selection differs from buds in one way. In many ways, you know, buds, a lot of water. Selection, you don't have to be a great swimmer, which is perfect for me because I, I found out in BUDS that I don't really like the water that much. But it differs in the yelling and screaming aspect. So at BUDS, it's very in your face. You're yelling and screaming in and, and that chaos, that fog of war. At Selection, it's different. It's mental. So they'll put a whiteboard up and they'll write directions on it. And they're like, follow the directions. And it may seem easy, but you're like, well, wait a second. It just tells me to follow the cones. It doesn't give me a time limit. It just says, do your best and follow the cones to tell I'm told to stop. Well, wait a second. What do you mean? Just do your best? Well, that doesn't make any sense. And then the other rules from the other day, don't talk to other students. Selection was very mentally tasking because you just there really is no yelling and screaming. It's just like, hey, do you want to be here? I mean, yeah, grab the log, man. Follow directions. What'd the whiteboard say? And you don't know if you're following cones for a mile or 30 miles. Yeah, so like on the track, we all wore game selection. You know, students went through before. We're like, all right, it's probably gonna be like 20 miles or something like that. Yeah, right, it's not a problem. So we are just told to follow the cones. And <laughs> next thing you know, I think the trek's 12 hours, something like that. Well, I can finally see the lights. Um, it's still dark out. I can finally see the lights. So I'm looking up ahead and you see the finish point because we all have these GPS little trackers on us. Because you were so tired, people will just straight up walk into the woods. And I was just so tired, but I just kept following the cones, just left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And I saw the lights. So, oh, man, this is great. So adrenaline spikes again and I start my little trot. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to. I'm gonna do it, and then I finally, you know, and you can see the lights, and they make a huge, bright, such a, an emotional thing. Like I'm gonna do it, man. I'm gonna finish, and you can see, you know, I start getting closer, and there's the Gatorade buckets and bananas and all this stuff, but there's a whiteboard there. It's like oh, maybe it's congratulations, and I get up there, and it's like, do not stop, continue following the cones. Are you fucking kidding me, man? I just did this. And guys quit just like that. Yeah. And I just was like, all right. So left foot, right foot, left foot, right, And just kept. And I maybe went another mile, mile and a half. And then truck came and picked us up. And they're like, all right, you're complete. It's like, well, where are we falling the cones to? Nowhere. You're done. Get in the truck. That's a big thing with SF is it's mental. Like, do you want to be here? Oh, okay. That's cool. If you don't, man, it's not a problem. Yeah. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. It's cool. It's not a problem. We'll see. Well, what do you mean? We'll see. Oh, we'll see. Well yell at me or something. Hit me. Like, what's up? I oh, don't know. No. This yeah, you're you're a good dude. Yeah, we'll see. Mm. What <laughs> what? And that that's worse for me. Like I can take all the yelling, screaming, and do this and do that. But the um, well, I don't know. How do you think you did? Well, I mean, good. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. well did I do good? I don't know. Did you do good? No, come on. You got to stop, dude. (laughs) It's bad. And when you're tired and hungry and all that, that really, and I've seen guys quit over words. Sounds like it would have been easier if they just told you, hey, Follow the cones for thirty miles, right? Because
1: mm-hmm. I like, I think then you know, all right, here I'm going to gauge my energy. You know, yeah. like speed yep. up, slow down. I, I remember we had uh, Matt Frazier on the podcast. Mm-hmm. He was like you know, five time CrossFit Games champ, yeah. and he was dominant. He said the most difficult qualifier they ever had was in the the COVID year where they all had to qualify virtually and remotely. Yeah. So they said, hey, just do your best. But he couldn't see how anybody else was doing. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, well, if it's just me well, how am I going to gauge my effort through this? Yeah. And how did you do it? I mean, just was it just one foot in front of the other? Because I imagine some of this was timed. You
0: probably didn't know it was timed, Yeah, right? So It was all my lessons from buds. And it was like, look, I don't know how I'm doing because they make a strict rule. Do not, if you're caught talking to other students during this evolution, you're gone. And they will. Like someone will be like, hey man, you good? Hey, you, roster number, whatever, back of the truck, you're done. You know, you can't.
1: That's it. You Dreams can't over. stop. Yeah. You can't
0: stop. And like the basic soldier instinct, like, oh, man, my buddy's down right now. He's hurting. I need to check on him. You can't. Why? Because can you follow directions? And that truck's there. I mean, they're not leaving him out there to die. The truck is right. They're watching it. But the minute you stop and like, hey, let me help you out. Now, guys do it. You know, we're, but you got to be sneaky about it because we are. We're we're, we're human being. But. For me, it was the lessons I learned at Buzz. It's like, look, I am not going to stop. They're going to tell me I'm done. I am never going to say I'm done again. And yeah, and I had to learn that lesson the hard way, which actually set me up for success to become a Green Beret because people are like, well, which one's harder? They're both hard. But it depends on how you go through the training. If you're mentally tough, you're going to be fine. If you're physically tough but not mentally tough, you're not going to make it, either one. And they do that for a reason. I kept going because they were gonna tell me to stop. I wasn't gonna stop, regardless of how fast I was, because on the track, you're a zombie. You're not going fast, you look dumb. (laughs) But it's just, yeah, you will tell me when I'm done. I will not tell me when I'm done. And that's what I learned from that. The
1: internal struggle Ryan faced from giving up on himself sparked a determination that would motivate him to push beyond his limits. Ryan chose to join an elite special forces team, the Green Berets, and I asked Ryan to elaborate on his decision.
0: My dad in Vietnam had worked with him. He wasn't a Green Beret himself, but he was a crew chief on medevac helicopters for MACV SOG teams. Um, they were Green Berets that were doing all the um, special tactic or the ST teams in different areas in Vietnam, whatnot like that. But then as I started to figure out more and more about what a Green Beret does, and so there's a lot of differences. People, One thing that people get hung up on is like, SEALs do this and Rangers do this and Green Berets do this, like... What's the difference? In my opinion, Rangers are the elite when it comes to, if you need this wide area, completely cleared, disarmed and bad guys killed, you send in Rangers. They will kill everything and they will do it extremely good. Surprise speed, violence of action, that is Rangers. Those dudes, 100%. SEALs, same thing. Their tactics are amazing. They are great shooters. They get a lot of good missions because they're good under the trigger and whatnot. The reason why being a Green Beret was so appealing to me is because of the human domain aspect of it. So anybody can pull a trigger. It's very easy to kill somebody. But being able to think through your shots, the second and the third order effects of if I pull the trigger here, what is that going to do for fill in all the blanks. And so now you're working in the human domain and instead of going in and kicking doors, which we've kicked plenty of doors, but now you're worried like, all right, if I go through and I trash this village, did I just create a bunch of potential terrorists? Or can we come through, ask the village elder for permission to enter his village? Yes, it's a little bit riskier, but treat them as a human being because surprise, they are human beings. Treat them as a human being with respect because again, surprise, people around the world like to be treated with respect. And then maybe we can gain rapport and maybe we can actually do this instead of pulling sugar and doing this and whatnot. Trigger pulling is necessary. That's the reason why we do. We have Rangers and we have SEALs because there are a lot of bad guys out there that just need to die. But there is also a domain in war that needs to have an unconventional aspect to it, which is why Green Berets thrive in UW or unconventional warfare. And that is, it's hearts and minds, it's force multiplying, it's getting dropped in behind enemy lines and hostile areas and building up a force through your locals or your indage or whatnot, and uh, building up a force to combat those threats for the greater good. And um, oh, by the way, you do it through what human beings respond to, respect, rapport, treating people like they're human beings and stuff like that. Yeah, you don't have to speak the language. You respect me. All right, man, let's talk. You start kicking doors and killing people that don't need to die. Again, thinking through your shots, then you probably just created more terrorists that could end up killing your buddy. And so that's what I really liked about being a Green Beret. Everybody has their niche. Um, Rangers are amazing. SEALs are amazing. But Green Berets, we work in the unconventional side of things to where we do have to think through the human domain. And that really, really appeased me. So, in becoming a Green Beret, I know there's the whiteboard portion we, we talked about,
1: but you <laughs> that's speak just to, selection. Yeah. How long is this, does this whole process take? And even had briefly
0: speaking to like the different steps involved. So, for me, it was from flash to bang. So, infantry basic airborne school all the way through it was a two-year process our medics are our, our 18 deltas <laughs> i mean two and a half three years of just training probably more like three years because of all the medical stuff they have to go through and i was too dumb to do that anyways i like explosives so It's was like yeah c4 boom Ah, oh, cool and so that's why you know that's what i did but yeah the i mean the phases of the pipeline and they constantly change it up because you always have to adapt to the new recruits that you have coming in because society changes and your, your caliber of soldier coming through, they may still be you know the dudes that are hard as woodpecker lips, but their mindset may be a little bit different. I'm more techie or I'm more this or I'm that. So you're constantly evolving. I went through with instructors that were just like, all right, we are gonna beat the crap out of you every step of the way. And if you don't like it, leave. And if you do like it, well, you're probably still going to leave because we hate you. And then I was like, well, this is, this is horrible. This sucks. Like, good, leave. I don't want to leave, you know, kind of thing. But from SUT, small unit tactics, and it was just, yeah, it was hard. I <laughs> mean, it was a physical beat down. And every time you start a new phase in the Q course, you revert back to day one. It's not like it's like, oh, hey, yeah, I've made it six months through the Q course. No one cares. Oh, you're day one, phase whatever. Yeah, you're a new guy that's never done anything before. You're a piece of crap. You're going to get your whole team killed in combat. You might as well quit right now. You suck. It's like, well, I, I was selected. I don't care. Selection's easy. Everyone always says everything I just did was easy until this is like, God, man, when am I ever going to be there? And you never are. And when you get to the teams, like, oh, you went to Q courses, a joke now. You should have went through when I went through. Holy cow, man. <laughs> when am I ever going to go through? Like Everyone was that last hard class. Everyone was like, oh, man, when I went through, it was like, oh, God, here we go. And I do the same thing, too. Like, oh, <laughs> no, no, no. When I went through and guys like, oh, yeah, last hard class ever. Everyone does that. It doesn't matter what, <laughs> what branch of the military you're in. Everybody was in that last hard class.
1: On the way to becoming a Green Beret, there's Mm -hmm. Team Week. It always seems like a team is so important, right? To be someone who's selfless, that really can work together on a team. Mm -hmm. This selects a lot of people out.
0: Yeah. It goes back to kind of what they focus on in Hell Week and whatnot like that. That's Selection is one giant Hell Week, but they really drill in on you in Team Week. So if there isn't going to be any in-your-faceness by the instructors, it's probably going to happen during Team Week. But- they don't really do that there either because you're so depleted as a, as a human being that they don't need to. They just walk up and they're like, huh. And you don't know what they're writing down. I've seen guys quit over that. But Team Week, it, it is. It goes back to kind of what Hell Week does. And I know um, Marsoff, they have theirs. Combat Control, Pararescue, they have theirs too. There's a gut check time. But that gut check time isn't, can I do this? Because nobody can do it individually. And that's when it goes from what I said earlier. Is it me or we? And if it's we, you're going to be fine. If it's me, you're going to go away. So what, what does that mean though?
1: Because like, I imagine a lot of people that go through this, they believe they're team players. What are the differentiators? What, what sets people apart in that you know, me or we decision?
0: The me or we comes because when bullets are flying and people are dying, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is not me dying. It's my buddy getting killed because of something I did. And so you have to have that we, you have to, or else people can die. When you focus on me and not we, you run a chance of getting somebody killed. And most likely it could be the guy that's either to your left or to your right of you. And so that's the reason why we do, like we wanna get the we's. We wanna weed out the me's. Me's are good for sports or whatnot, you know, individual, competitive things, me's are not good for combat. You have to have we's. Like, I'll lay down my life to make sure my buddies go home to their families. You have to have that. And then it's like, okay, you can soldier. I will teach you everything else. You can teach a monkey to do our job. But it's very hard to teach we, if not impossible. But if you have that we, like, hey, look, I got it, man. But I want to make sure my team succeeds in team week. It's team week (laughs) then you're probably going to be okay and instructors see it instructors see the spotlight rangers instructors see the guys that are you know they'll put out when an instructor's around but when the instructors aren't around but they are then they're you know giving their back a rest or their legs a rest and then they also see that dude he may not look the part but he's always grabbing the heaviest shit and he's always like hey man i got this No, no no you take a break i got this and he knows nobody's watching him even though they are that's the we aspect, because in combat, nobody cares. You're either for the team or you're not. And you want team players when bullets are flying.
1: Fast forward, 2010. Mm-hmm. Tell me uh, about your experiences. Uh, like with the
0: 18 Charlie. Right? <laughs> so when I first got to group, it was a rude awakening. So I had graduated the Q course. was, yeah, I'm Green Beret now. It's badass. And I thought, you know, I just like, man, it's... It's going to be smooth sailing from here. I'm going to get to my company and I'm going to get to my ODA and everything's going to be easy. Yeah, because I, I just made it through all this training, right? No. So I show up to the company, you know, Sergeant Hendrickson here. I'm checking in to the company. I uh, just finished training. I was like, I don't give a fuck. Who are you? Um, uh, Ryan Henderson. I'm checking in. Oh, yeah, man, Just just go over there, dude. Okay, so I'm over there. I said, man, that's not important. Is that the guy doesn't know who I am? I'm Green Beret. So finally they're like, all right, dude, you're going to this ODA. Like, all right, I'll get down there. These guys will care. I'm a green beret. I just went through all this training. Pretty badass. Get down there and knock on the door. This dude opens the door and he's just in he's just in ranger panties. It's like, uh the fuck are you, dude? I well, I I'm the uh, your new 18 Charlie. What? We don't have a new 18 Charlie. Slam! Like, all right. Uh, <laughs> so, what do I do? And then door opens back up and he's like, stand outside. It's your place of duty. Yeah, just stand here. We'll let you know. So, I'm just standing there. Then they'd call me in for a thing or two. He was like, hey, what's your name? Sarn Henderson. Man, your parents are jerks. My name is so and so. What's your name, stupid? It's like, oh, it's Ryan. Well, still a stupid name, but yeah, get back outside. Nobody cares. Shut up. What is going on here, man? So it was like standing outside the door for you know, a week, and then you get let into the team room, and then best piece of advice I got is, is no one cares what you have to say. We don't care. You haven't done shit in your life. Shut your mouth. Open your ears and your eyes and learn because we're going to war. You know. Um, yeah, when I got to my ODA four months later, heading to Afghanistan, we're going to war. So no one cares who you are. We don't care. We're not friends. We're not because when I got into group, Afghanistan, 2010, that was a big year in Afghanistan. Huge year, most casually producing year in Afghanistan. And and I say back then, I'm not that, (laughs) like, it's not like, oh, I'm this old school dude. No, no, I just mean back in 2010, until you prove yourself in combat, no one gives two shits about you at all because you didn't do anything when bullets were flying. You can talk all you want. You can, you know, be the best runner or swimmer or whatever it is, you know, whether you're SEAL or Green Beret or Marsock or whatever. No one cared until you proved yourself when rounds were flying and it actually meant something. And so, and that was, I was just like, wow, I, <laughs> I made it all the way through training. Why do you, you guys not know who I am? No, and we don't really care. So, because if you're not good, you're going to die and nobody wants to care. Better be good. So
1: then, I mean, I guess you got out there. How, how did you find yourself as the man up front? Because it's interesting. We were talking before we started recording. Mm-hmm. Now you say like that is the place you control. It's where you felt most safe. But well, yeah. one could argue you're also the first to encounter an IED.
0: Yeah. So as, as an 18 Charlie, it's demolition expert or whatnot. We go through IED courses and whatnot like that. I mean, the Taliban were extremely good at adapting to our tactics techniques and procedures ttps so the taliban were very good at it they knew like okay when these guys are coming up on a house they're going to put security up here here and here okay we're going to put ieds here here and here because we know that this is where they're going to do security and then they're going to move up on the door like this they're probably not going to just be up on the wall they're going to come at it at a 45 degree angle so we're going to put ieds right here And then we'll put, they're probably going to step over the threshold. And so they were able to adapt to our TTPs and they would IED, you know, those areas and whatnot like that. And we learned a little bit about it in the Q course as an 18 Charlie, the only MOS that really did. So you're like, all right. And they're like, all right, you're the IED guy because you learned all this stuff about IEDs. Like, Hold on, hold on. (laughs) And so when I got into country, we had counter IED guys that were Afghans. And those dudes, extremely good. They could look down a road and be like, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. IED, IED, IED. Like, how do you know? He goes, I just know. Well, how? Well, because I'm from here and I know that that doesn't belong there and that's not right there. It's like, damn. And so I started to learn that, yeah, you have all this equipment and mind-detecting equipment, all this other stuff, but I have found the majority of my IEDs with my eyeballs you know, because it's ground signed. It's something's not right here. Would I put one here? Okay, then maybe there's one here. And all that was learned in Afghanistan, but I ended up in the front because of my MOS. It's like, oh, well, you're the IED guy. You trained on it in in, uh, the Charlie course. And I was like, ah, not really, (laughs) but okay. But I ended up loving it because I could control my environment in the front. You're never going to be able to control what the enemy does. But if I'm in the front... The only thing I'm worried about is, you know, what I can't control, but I can control everything around me. And so me having that control, it created safety for me, even though I was probably the first one to get my face canoed in, it created a safety bubble because I had control. It's weird to explain, but it's just how my mind works. Like I control what I can control. And if it's meant to happen, then it's going to happen. You can't control that. I believe that the beginning of your life and the end of your life are written. They're set in stone. There's nothing you can do about it. When you're born and when you die, that's done. But those pages in between, they're all blank. So it's how you're going to fill them out. So if this is how I'm going to die, it's already done. It doesn't matter if I'm in Afghanistan or at home. I will die this day. And there's nothing you can do to change it. And that's my mindset. And so being in the front, if I get my face shot off or whatnot, it was going to happen that way because that was my ending chapter of my story, but I can control my environment. And I guess I like to have control.
1: <laughs> so that September, you encountered a pretty significant setback.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we were in the Chutu Valley and we were, we were doing just um, reconnaissance in this valley for months because we were about ready to do a major um, valley clearance. Intel was like 2,500, 3,000 Taliban fighter in the valley. We're bringing enough ass to the fight. So we kicked off the clearance operation on September 11th. And then we got up to our our set of compounds that we were gonna be clearing uh, because we had the southern part of the valley and we were gonna be moving north. But we got to our first objectives. uh, We got to clear these first set of compounds. And we have taken fire from these compounds nonstop, nonstop so that we know there's bad guys here, but it's quiet but it's too quiet. There's no dogs, nothing. What is going on? So up front, we're clearing the path to the first set of compounds. We stop, kind of do one last check of your Afghan counterparts. Like, hey, all right, this is what we're doing. Don't forget that compound, pointy talky, you know, uh, make sure everybody understands. We got about 25 meters. That's compound number one. All right, let's go. Ready, break. They're just standing there hey, man, hey, and our interpreter, we called him Nick. It's like, Nick, did you tell him? He goes, yeah, I told him. It's like, tell him again. So he does, you know, we're whispering, noise and light discipline all that. I see head shaking. I said, no. What do you mean no? They said, it's too dangerous. Well, no shit, it's dangerous. They said, well, you Americans, you're better trained than us, so you guys should go first. It's like, yeah, if this was Texas and we were clearing a village in Texas, yeah, okay, I would go first my country, but it's Afghanistan. So you guys should probably, you know, the whole uh, for your country kind of thing. Nope. So I turned around to tell, you know, my counterpart that was with me his man, these, <laughs> these guys aren't budging. They're not going to move. And he just, he's like, hey, what is Nick doing? What are you talking about? He goes, get him away from that compound right now. So I turned around and Nick had ran down to the first compound and he's trying to do the Afghan Rambo thing, like, you know, but quiet because we still... I mean, Taliban, know you're there. They're not, but they're just still being quiet. He's trying to wave them down. Oh, shit. And if you lose your terp, well, you can't communicate with your partner force. And we were broken up into cells to where it was like 12 to 15 Afghans and two Americans. You kind of need to communicate with your partner force. So uh, he was like, go get Nick off that doorway entrance, whatever you want to call it. All right. So... I was like, well, I wonder where he stepped because none of this is clear. And we've seen animals hit IEDs around these compounds like crap. So I'd move down to him and hindsight 2020, maybe I should have used my mind detector. Ah, But it's hindsight. So I'd move down to him and I grabbed him. It's like, Nick, you know, wrong move, dude. Move back. He goes, no, no, no. We can take this compound. Come on. They'll come now that you're here. was like, no, we got to move back and regroup. Like this will be completely unorganized if we, you know, and chaotic. And we don't want that. Clarence should be smooth. So I pulled him away from the breach point and you don't ever want to have your blind side to the unknown. And so my blind side at that time was when I pulled Nick away and I pointed back to where to go. So now my side is exposed to the breach and all someone has to do is just poke an AK-47 out there, spray, and I'm going to take some rounds in my side and I'm dead. So you put your plates to the unknown and your gun to the unknown. So I cover his movement back to where all the guys were at. And then I caught something out of the corner of my eye. It's like movement. I don't know if it was a dog. I don't know if it was a person. I don't know what it was, but I wanted to shoot somebody. <laughs> and I, you know, cause you're amped. You know you're in bad guy territory. You know, they're watching. You can hear them on ICOM chatter. And I see this movement. So I step inside the breach and boom. And they had an IED right there in the doorway or the breach point or whatever you want to call it. So I stepped on an IED that was in the doorway. Why? Because they know our TTPs. They know how to play with our minds. They're very good at that. And so the IED goes off and I can't figure out what happened. It's just like, what? What in the hell happened? And it didn't hurt. And I was like, okay, so maybe I'm good. And, and granted, it sounds like this is a long time, but this is all seconds. And so I'm laying there and I can't breathe because the dust, the ammonia explosion went off. And I was like, I need to get fresh air. I'm going to suffocate. Why can't I move? God, man, I can't move. I got a 50 pound or a pack on full of demo and everything like that. i am got my M4 and everything. I'm, I'm a heavy dude, but I can't move. So now I'm getting pissed. It's like, why can't I get up? Every time I try and get up, I keep falling over. So I'm able to calm myself down so I I can think clearly. This can't be that bad. What happened? So then as the dust starts to clear, I look down, and my boot was at a 90-degree angle to my leg. And I remember I was like, huh, how'd that happen? I didn't take my boot off or anything. So again, real curious dude over here. <laughs> so I grab my leg from behind my knee and I lift up on my leg and my boot flops over. And these two like pearly white objects are sticking out of my pants. And again, again, maybe it's that too stupid to quit thing. I'm like, huh, I mean, those are really white because like bone out of your leg or arm or whatever, it's whiter than white. It should have its own color. Maybe it's called bone, I don't know. But I was like, Huh. And then my boot flopped over to where like the heel of my boot was hitting me in the hamstring. And then I was like, "Oh, that's my leg. Boom, pain hit me just like that." It's all oh, gone. Okay, you know, and is, "Oh man, it hurts so bad." But it was funny because it's like I was able to psych myself out so much because I didn't know what was going on that it didn't hurt. And then when I realized it hurt, my mind was like, Oh, yeah, yeah, let's hit these pain receptacles. That's right, our bad, dude. <laughs> we should have been doing this the whole time. And man, so, you know, you do the whole thing you see on movies. movie, you know, medic, I'm down, I'm down, you know, stuff like that and whatever. But it was crazy how it was like, it didn't hurt at first. And it's like, what is, I wonder what happened, you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's what happened. And then it's, then the pain, you know, <laughs>
1: And like initially, these guys can't run to your aid, right? No. I mean, they don't know if there's, there's other IEDs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they don't know the situation.
0: So the Taliban also know that we will send 100 service members to recover one. And if 99 of them die and we recover that person, it's mission success. But we will not leave a soldier to fall in the hands of the enemy. And they know this. And they also know that we value life and they value death. And so if they can die this glorious death, then that is the same as us saving our buddy. And we will, our adrenaline will take over, will override your common sense, and they know this, and you will run down there to save your screaming buddy that could very well die if he doesn't. And so the Taliban are like, huh, we're going to put multiple IEDs in the area. So a rescue team, if they run straight to his aid, they're going to hit all these IEDs. And now we got like 10 dudes on the ground. Perfect, very smart. And so they actually play on our value of life so much to where the IED I hit, there were secondary IEDs all around me. And so that's why in the military, we train self-aid, buddy aid. You have to be able to provide self-aid to yourself first because you can't just run down to the dude you run after him now you're a target now you're hit now the team has to recover two not just one and it's hard it's hard because of our value of life and they know that and they're they're experts at playing on that so in that in that
1: moment, I mean, once you realize basically your leg's been blown off, mm-hmm. like, what's your thought process? Are you thinking, man, it's over, or this is it for me entirely? This is it for my career? This is like, or I need help and bring bring the morphine? That mm. you, know, you soon learn that yeah. the morphine was not for you.
0: Yeah, no. As I was laying there, I remember the guy that was on my team as he was on the radio, like, hey, we got. It. Ryan hit an IED, got a man down, because the very first thing you do is security. Your buddy can be bleeding out, but if guys are getting hit all around you, then you're not doing them any good. Security has to be up. Well, he knew that I had wandered into an uncleared area and there was IEDs. Where there's one, there's five, or three, or 10, who knows? Guys are starting to move from where they were at in their position because we were spread out all over the village. They're starting to move back. Now it's like, oh shit, we got IEDs in the area. So we need to retrace our steps back. We need to get to this point. We need to clear up the Ryan. We need to, you know, oh, by the way, we have ICOM chatter that the Taliban are going to put in an ambush on us. Okay. And so I'm laying there. And I remember I'm like, my team can't get to me. And it was a very helpless feeling. And I kept trying to put my tourniquet on, but I couldn't. I was like, what is going on, man? Like, I just don't have the strength. And so I remember I laid back one time and I looked over All the chaos was in slow motion. Dudes were running here. You could see guys pointing, you know, getting security up. But I laid my head back and I was like, I'm going to die here today. And I don't know why. Because, well, number one, I'm not a doctor. So I can't look down on my leg and be like, oh, that's just a fill in the blanks. No. Tons of pain, you know, and I see red stuff everywhere, which is meat and blood and all this other stuff. And my team can't get to me. But it's a very sobering moment in your life when you know you're going to die. It's hard to explain, but it's just this weird, like, emotional, regret-filled pain. Like, man, I wish I would have done this, or I didn't do this, or all this shit just hits you. And you're just like, damn. <laughs> you know, and then, obviously, you know, i kind of hear, so I made it. But, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I, I actually thought, like, I'm going to die here today. I am. So they finally get to you, mm-hmm. right? They give you like a
1: fentanyl, uh, lollipop, and then and then the morphine, right? As yeah. soon as they give you the morphine, you break out in hives. Yeah. You mentioned in the book that usually, like if you can just hang on for an hour, mm-hmm. right? You're okay, but this was longer than an hour.
0: Yeah, so it's called the golden hour. And basically what that means is from you getting hit, you have the highest survivability rate within one hour. And so when you plan your missions out, you're like, all right, we're gonna be here in the Chutu Valley. I know that I could medevac him from here to TK or Terran within an hour. If he gets hit here, he'll be at Terran within an hour. His survivability rate, it's in this level, okay? If it's over an hour, hour 10, hour 15, whatever. Like I didn't study these charts, but I know it starts to drop dramatically once you go over that golden hour. And so, yeah, by the time I got fished out of there, (laughs) my rate had dropped pretty dramatically just because of the amount of IEDs in the area, the Taliban. Our overwatch position was actively engaging the Taliban fighters that were trying to move in on our position because Taliban, again, they're smart. If they could close the gap between their position and our position, that limits us dropping bombs on them or else we're dropping bombs on ourselves.
1: So then, I mean, you wake up in the trauma center. Hmm. At that point, you know, you've been through surgery. Yeah. I mean, you gain an understanding, right, that you're, you're not going to die. You're, go, you're going to live. But there's a different wave of regret hit you at that point, thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to live, but
0: now how am I going to live? I had this, like, this overwhelming feeling that I let my team down. I know that when I woke up in Tarenkau or TK, it didn't quite hit me that my life was forever changed because I was, you know, I was completely whacked out on drugs and whatnot like that for the pain, but I remember being very emotional that I had let my team down, I failed my team. And so that was that F word again, the failure. There was a lot of emotional like pain there because I just kept thinking about everything, the whole hindsight 2020, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I could have done it this way or I should have done, you know, and, but you didn't, but I couldn't think through all that. And so, yeah, I beat myself up pretty hard in the hospital there. Following his injury, Ryan
1: had over two dozen surgeries, extensive rehab, and by all counts, was medically retired. But Ryan was not ready to give up yet.
0: So there was one incident that happened when I was laying on the ground and the team finally got to me. You know, they're doing all the life-saving procedures on me. Number one concern of any guy that steps on an IED is, is my dick still there? And it's it's just the way it is because we're men. So go from that to like, hey man, your leg, like you need to worry about your leg. But- then on the ICOM, so ICOM is the radio system that the Taliban use. Well, it's only FM radio. It's not secure. So if we have an FM radio and we find their channel, we can listen in. And they were celebrating and laughing about me getting hit with the IED. So that, that really bothered me. It's like, all right, all right, hold my beer, dude. Watch this. And so when I was rehabbing, there was two things that happened. My Sergeant Major came and he saw me one time and he said, hey, um, if you can get medically cleared, I'll send you back to war. Now, when he said that, there was zero way I was getting medically cleared. I was actually getting medically retired out of the military. It's like, <laughs> really? But okay, confidence. Do, and then do you think
1: he said that just to encourage you, or did he actually like want to see you come back?
0: So him and I are really good friends now. I think. I was bothering him so much that he did. He definitely wanted to encourage me, but it was definitely something that was not going to happen. Like you were unfit for military duty, but then the drive because the Taliban were laughing at me and celebrating. And so I had um, my Sergeant Major's word <laughs> um, that if I could get cleared, he would send me back to war you know, and the, the Taliban. when I got back, they weren't like, oh, he did it. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Come kill us, dude. Badass. That's like, nah. But in my mind, that's how it was going to work. And so I did. I dove into, recklessly dove into rehab and to put some semblance of Ryan Hendricks and 18 Charlie back together again so I could get back. I'll deal with all the personal stuff and I'll deal with the mental side of all this once I get back, but I need to get back to Afghanistan. And so, yeah, I just put everything into it.
1: Man. And, <laughs> and, and uh, when you're going through this rehab process, you, you talk about the fact that the thin line between drive and stupidity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did you mean? Yeah. So, there is a thin line between drive and stupidity. You can drive so hard to where you hurt yourself even worse. It was dumb. It's just not giving myself the proper time to actually heal. But I had. You know, in my rehab and whatnot like that, I had world class people working with me, whether it was my orthopedic surgeon or my physical therapist or the guy that created the um, Ideo device and all this other stuff. They were world class, second to none. And so, yeah, I mean, there is a thin line between drive and stupidity, but stupidity will still get you there somewhat. (laughs) It just may not be good for you. And it's tough to say, like,
1: you know, use the word like luck in any of this, but Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that IDEO device, right? That prosthetic in this kind of journey, that was a bit lucky, right? Because you were one of the first soldiers to even be outfitted with these prosthetics that had Mm -hmm. it happened at a different time.
0: Yeah, it was generation one. It was a lucky break for me that, you know, I did. I got blown up. When I got blown up, I stepped on an IED that was a higher quality HME, so it wasn't it's called re factors and so you can have explosives that have the the explosive pushing effect of tnt or dynamite or you can have explosives that have the cutting effect of c4 and i stepped on one that had more of a cutting effect so if i would have stepped on the same size ied that was more of a dynamite charge then it just would have shredded everything and there's nothing they could have done with my leg but I stepped on something that just shot straight up through my leg, exited out at my calf, and it was a good cut. And so I was like, all right, bomb maker. Thanks, bro. Good hookup, dude. There was a lot of luck that came in with me actually saving my leg. And so it was when I got blown up, it was the IED that I stepped on. And it was the me getting sent to the facility I did in San Antonio, Brooks Army Medical Center, and the quality of staff that was there. I mean, second to none, world class. So, yeah, there, there is a lot of luck um, that was involved in it. But not everybody was supportive of, of you coming back, right? I mean,
1: I, <laughs> I imagine there obviously, there were probably, there were some, but I mean, most were probably saying, Ryan, it's, I don't think that's a good idea.
0: Yeah, I mean, most were actually saying, Ryan, that's not a good idea because, so the some that were supporting me was like my dad. My dad knew I needed to get back to combat. I needed to prove myself or it was going to haunt me for the rest of my life. But even through the rehab process, it's like, hey, look, man, You're setting your standards so high that we're worried that when you don't go back to combat, because you're probably not going to go back to combat, it's going to mentally destroy you. We need you to have some sort of management expectation. You need to be able to understand, like, here's your injuries. Here's the chances of you going back. Here's the chances of you doing something else. These chances dwarf these chances. So you need to quit putting everything in this five to 10 percentile and start to think about this 90 percentile over here because it's management expectation. And I understand that, it's smart. You have to be able to manage your expectations, but I didn't care. And it sounds like a great success story, but it's also very dangerous because that's a path, if you go down that path and you don't meet that expectation, that's a mental health nightmare right there. And so, yeah, I recklessly went for the 10% chance of going back to combat and didn't even think about, well, if this doesn't work, I didn't have any backup plans. It was all or nothing. And it sounds like a success story, but it's very dangerous. Even when I got cleared and I was able to weasel my way onto a flight back to Afghanistan in 2012, when I showed up, the team there was like, what are you doing here, dude? you are a liability to this team right now. So, so a- that
1: surprised me, right? Yeah. You, you would think, you
0: come back and they're like, man, Brian, welcome back, man. <laughs>
1: like, Not uh, in combat. But let's do this. But they were concerned, right? They were concerned about yep. your ability to perform. And, and it's
0: interesting just from a team and, and leadership dynamic. Yep. How did you dissect that? So it was hard because again, it was <laughs> it was just like going to the team room thinking there was going to be a ticker tape parade for the new guy out of the Q course. It was hard because it was like, what are you doing here, man? Like, you think this is a -a make-a-wish foundation for Green Berets in combat? It's not. You can't come here and pew-pew a few times and then go home and everything's great. Like, you're putting people's lives at risk because, again, it's the we, not the me. But I wanted to get back to combat so bad because I was so focused on the me. And I didn't really stop to think, like, oh, am I a liability to the team? And when I got back, I got sent to... (laughs) the most IED area in Afghanistan, which was Panjue district, Kenhar province in 2012. And so there was IEDs everywhere. Dudes were getting blown up left and right. But, you know, I started proving myself and hey, and you know, whatnot like that. And over a period of time, it's like, okay, hey, we're glad you're back. But it could have gone either way. And they were absolutely right. Like, why didn't you send us a good 18 Charlie with both legs? Why are you here, dude? And you have to understand that because it's combat and people die in combat.
1: So, like, there's obviously the, the physical component, which you know you were able to, to rehab, you know, get back on the ground. Mm-hmm. But, but what about the mental aspect? I mean, after <laughs> having your leg blown off, and now now you're right back on the ground. Were
0: you worried about how you'd respond if you were to encounter something like that again? It's impossible to step on an IED or to get shot and come back exactly the same way you were before, because before you got hit, you were ignorant to what getting hit was about after you got hit, now you know what it's about. It's a mental minefield. I mean, the first couple of IEDs I found, the full range of emotions, it's just like, what am I doing, man? Why, why do I have to keep proving this to myself? Are you that dumb? And it's like, oh yeah, you are. So there's a part in the
1: book where you talk about this Hilltop 2000 mission and, <laughs> and after having gone through what you went through, right? And yeah. like all the adversity you overcame, I imagine it was difficult when you would hear people complaining about anything, just the difference of perspective.
0: Hilltop 2,000. <laughs> so why we called it 2,000? Because in little under a click, there was 2,000 feet in elevation gain. So basically, we were going straight up to put up this observation post for this major valley clearance. And I was going up there with the command element. So they needed an 18 Charlie. I had had an incident that happened on the team that moved me to the command section because my last... Mission in Panjue, we were in a firefight, and I jumped in a ditch full of human feces, and I had open blisters, and those skin graft on the bottom of my foot was hanging open, and skin graft on my leg was rubbed raw. And so all the, and so during this entire firefight, I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, it really stinks. Ah, man, it stinks. Ah. and then once I figured it out, I was like, oh, I just jumped jumped in a shit trench. So then I had to get, you know, once we got back from the mission, they sent me back to calf and then. Command was like, hey, you're going to be here. Deployment's getting ready to end, and so you're going to hang out here with the command team so we can watch you. Well, there was this big valley clearance coming up, and it was the last time for the command to get in their last hurrah. Like, yeah, we went out and we did stuff with guns. And, you know, because they don't. It's Command is on base, and they do a lot of that stuff. And our command was amazing, amazing group of dudes. And (laughs) they were going to go up this hilltop, and it's 2,000 feet in elevation, and under a click. And the first siren came out to me. I'm my, he's my buddy now, and he's like, hey, um, you show me how to work this mind detector? I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I guess I'm going to clear the path. Well, why don't you just take me? They're like, I don't know, man. So I was able to weasel my way onto that mission, and I knew that if I beasted that mission, regardless of what happened to me in group, the command element knew what I had done, They would see me on that mission, and I was pretty much good to go because this was going to be one of the hardest infills that I've ever done, and it was. So I was able to get myself on that mission, and, oh, man, Hilltop 2000. Oh, that sucks so bad. <laughs> Super horrible.
1: Isn't, isn't it amazing? Like just, I mean, just listening to you, because this is one of those things that I'm sure that not everyone would want to volunteer for, right? Yeah. And you're chomping at the bit thinking, man, let me, let me weasel my way in here. Yeah. And again, throughout all this, you're not getting any special treatment.
0: Mm-mm. No, it's combat. There is no special treatment. Um, it's either you carry your load or your liability, and we better not find out you can't carry your load on mission. So if you can't do this, don't come. Be a man and don't show up. Because that is is hard. Like, as a man, you want to be like, oh, I can do everything. But once you start putting people's lives at risk, you need to be able to take that, you know, that pregnant pause, take a step back and be like, I don't think I have it in. Like, I'm going to be a liability if I do this. And I learned a lot of that after I got blown up. But I was still never able to say I'd be a liability.
1: You closed this out, I think, in 2016. What got you back to the front, right? That mission. Because at that point, I mean, was there anything left to
0: prove? So the 2016 mission, so, I mean, you know, I've almost died in this country. We've been in tons of firefights. There wasn't really anything left to prove, but I still hadn't. Once you get in a good enough fight, you are always chasing that adrenaline rush, that brush with death. And so you're constantly chasing the dragon. So I had an opportunity to go back to Afghanistan in 2016 with a different company they needed an 18 Charlie. And he's like, well, I'm in 18 Charlie, found a lot of IEDs, so I would like to go. So that deployment right there, <laughs> I caught the dragon. Uh, it, was, it was a mission in Baghlan province. And that mission alone, I ended up just myself. I found 14 IEDs. My Afghan counterparts found over 50 we had been in multiple firefights, multiple ambushes. And I caught the dragon that mission,
1: yeah. And I know you said earlier you loved explosions. <laughs> you
0: had explosions too, you know? Oh, man, we... So just from the beginning, when we infilled in, we were getting ready to, to hit our first objective. And to get to this objective, you had to go through an orchard. And everyone knows in Afghanistan, orchards are super bad news. Booby traps whatever so as we started moving through this orchard and again i'm up front because i'm in 18 charlie and i got my afghans with me we are looking for ieds and we hit a tripwire ied in the very front so we hear this loud snap so everyone hits the deck like you're supposed to and it's like sniper like anyone hit like we're good well we're trying to get this fishing line off us like what is all over us and we realize oh we just hit a tripwire ied at chest level it's like crap man and it didn't go off the blasting cap went off but the actual uh, wall charge didn't go off and if it would have it would have killed us all because it was just bolts nails nuts everything it's like okay so keep pushing on like adrenaline rush all right calm down calm down mission hasn't even started yet haven't even hit the first objective calm down okay Still got to make it to this compound. Move uh, probably about 20 more feet. And I see this movement, this figure darts across this open area. It's like, whoa, what was that? So your gun comes up. And next thing I know, this burst of flame comes out of the wall. And it's about 20 meters from me. And it's a PKM. So a PKM uh, machine gun. So 7.62 just starts all around us rounds are coming in everywhere and it's one o'clock in the morning so they can't see us but we can see them we have night vision and then they also I didn't realize this (laughs) they also had limited night vision so this PKM opens up and then this entire side of the compound wall opens up AKs just blasting at our position and under uh, night vision it just flashes everywhere you got AK over here and then RPG fires off it's like holy shit man we're (laughs) we're pinned down in the orchard and the remainder of the element was still making their way to the orchard because you clear ahead of the main element. And so they're pinned down too, because the Taliban had put up what we call a L-shaped ambush. Pretty good. And so we're cut off in the orchard. Then over ICOM chatter, they're saying, hey, there's an American. He has the flashing helmet. So I had an IR strobe or an infrared strobe on my helmet, which you can't see unless you have night vision. Well, the Taliban commander had night vision. So he was trying to put fires down on me. He was trying to coordinate fires um, onto me. And they yelled at the radio. They're like, Ryan, get that Irish robe off your helmet. And it's, oh, shit. So I tore it off and I threw it, you know, as close as I can get to where the PKM was at to help our JTAC coordinate an airstrike onto that machine guns position. But yeah, we, <laughs> we were pinned down and RPG after RPG after RPG and... I mean, I caught the dragon. It was the most intense, adrenaline, scary. I mean, scary is not even the right word for it. Death, <laughs> something. Whatever a word is for being so scared that you go off of muscle memory. Yep, that's what we were, pinned down in that orchard. And it, it did. I mean, they we couldn't get approval to drop because my position from where the first machine gun was at was 20 meters. That's not only danger close. That's extremely danger close. <laughs> like you're gonna drop on your own dudes, and finally get approval to drop because if we don't drop, Ryan's dead. So we were able to drop. Boom! First bomb goes off, and <laughs> it rocked me. Like I'm trying to stand up, I keep falling over. The only thing I can quit is being drunk. But this was like a drunk. Like your skeleton leaves your body, slaps you in the face, then re-enters your body. Ah, it was weird, but. Um, 500 pound bomb dropped, uh, 17 meters from my position. And, um, finally it's like, all right, get the guys fall back to where the main elements at, drop another couple bombs. All right. Assault the compound. And I'm still, I'm sitting there. And I'm like, holy cow. What's I got this liquid coming out of my ears and what, what is going on, man? I'm things are spinning, but you're in combat. And so muscle memory takes over and you're just left, right, left, right, left, right. Same way you do in training. Um, which is why we train the way we do. And that was the beginning of the mission. So we ended up clearing all of the village. I think it was called Nyazula. We get to our LOA or our limit of advance. I think it was like 1400, two o'clock in the afternoon. And um, it's like, all right, hey, let's get up on MWE, men, weapons, and equipment. And then we're gonna fall back to the vehicles. We've cleared the village, mission complete. And there was IEDs everywhere. There was tunnels there was fighting positions there there's world war one style trenches i was just like holy cow i mean were you guys expecting anything maybe yeah but <laughs> we're at the loa and one of the commandos the afghan commandos comes up to me with a turp and he's like hey um we're seeing people that are coming this way he's like what do you mean people are they women and children or are they men there's no children okay All right, hey, hey, guys, we need to wrap this up. We need to go. But at this point in time, we're trying to let the Afghan army know, like, hey, guys, you're going to have to hold this area. It's ancient in warfare. Take ground. You hold it. Nope. We don't want to hold it. Well, then why are we here? You have to. So anyway, so we're having this debate with Afghan forces at the time. And this commando, he's like, hey, um, like the army, they can do whatever they want. But we need to leave now. We have word, there's a lot of guys coming in this direction, a lot of somebody, they're not children and we keep seeing them and then not seeing them. And so tunnel system. Then it's like, hey, you know, I told the team center, like, hey man, we need need to roll, this is what's going on. And it was like, within a matter of seconds, (laughs) the entire tree line, the entire mud wall that was, you know, 50 feet in front of us, everything just erupted in flames and PKM, RPGs, sniper fire, and dudes were dropping and we just went for cover. You know, you're not worried about concealment, just cover. I need to get out of this line of fire and then we need to fight back with overwhelming fire superiority and we need to take the advantage, the upper hand. And it's like, how do we get that? Well, with air support. Okay, great. What's that, we can't drop bombs? Well, why? oh, you don't know who's who because they're in our lines. It's like, oh, shit, man. So we're going to have a fist fight here. And so we did. I mean, we went 45 minutes without being able to drop bombs. Now, planes would do show of force. That's when they fly over and they'll shoot flares or whatnot like that or do low flyovers. But we had stumbled into a Taliban training camp. And crazy enough, we surprised them and they surprised us. (laughs) And so we're duking it out with these dudes. I mean, we didn't have our air support. And then we start to get casualties coming in. And then you get that dreaded call over the radio, eagle down, eagle down, eagle down. And that's when you know an American's been hit. Whether he's KIA, whether he's WIA, you don't know. And so eagle down is it's a horrible thing to hear. Horrible. It, it stops your heart. And so it's like, okay, we got Americans down. And then over the radio again, eagle down, eagle down. And then the radio again, eagle down, eagle down. It's like, holy shit, dude, dudes are getting hit. We're starting to try and figure out, like, we need to set up a CCP or a casualty collection point. We got to start getting these wounded dudes in here. We got to start getting these dead in here. So CCP's over here. All right, CCP's over here. Well, my buddy, Frankie, and I, we're still up in the front. So we don't see all this going on behind us because we were in the front, which is where the 18 Charlies are. And so... Now all of a sudden, we hear that the, the, the most dreaded sound for Green Berets, and I'm pretty sure for SEALs and MARSOC and everybody else too, is the thump of a mortar leaving the tube. And you're like, oh shit, 1-1000, 2-1000, 3-1000, 4 one thousand, five. boom. So the mortar explodes up behind us. We're like, holy cat, man, 50 meters behind us, like shit, 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 thump. 1-1000, one, 2-1000, one the mortar explodes in front of us. well shoot long shoot um close and then split the difference and they're gonna bracket you in so now it's like hey we need to leave now and so we had like three wounded afghans with us so we're doing this duck walk through this trench because every time your head gets stuck up they take shots at you and we knew there was no ieds in it because it was like a foot of water so and i don't know of any underwater ieds that they've created but i was fairly certain we weren't going to hit an ied with a foot of water in the ditch so we make it to the first CCP. It's like, okay, all right, let's get these um, wounded dudes offloaded. Hey, where do you guys need us? Find work, find work, find work. You got it, security, security, security. And then we start taking rounds into the CCP. And we look over and there's a two-story building and they're hitting us with a sniper fire from that building. So we're returning fire. Well, the building's far enough away we can drop on it. So now we got bombs on target. Okay, Taliban knows we have bombs on target now. So now we can start to turn the tide of the battle because at this point we're getting our asses kicked. But we got to move the CCP because we hit that building, but then we start taking fire from a different point. And so we know there's a tunnel system around there somewhere. So we find another area for the CCP, which is running across the fatal funnel again, that road where all the rounds are coming from. (laughs) And then we find this building that we can secure that has an open field that we can also secure and start getting helicopters down to get the uh, wounded and the dead out. So secure the CCP. All right, hey, now we're dropping bombs. We've uh, distinguished the lines between Taliban and us. We're actually, you know, once you start putting bombs down, they're gonna start to, to hide. Good. All right, this is our time to pull back. We need men, weapons, and equipment. Not so much weapons and equipment. We need men, head count. All right, Americans, all accounted for. Good, ask we have three missing. Shit. Well, you can't leave guys behind. Nobody gets left behind. So what do we do? Well, <laughs> we got to go get them. So it's back, back down that road again. Rounds going off everywhere. You know, it's that fatal funnel again, and we're looking for dudes. So we go back to the old CCP. Boom, found one guy. Okay, now we were missing two. Where was the last time my Afghan counterpart, Abe, Where do we see him last? Well, shit, the last time I saw him was at the footbridge 500 meters up this road that seems to be attracting a whole lot of firepower down it. Why? Because it's aiming stakes. You got the left and right limit of the road. Anything in between it, shoot it. Simple. It's like, all right, how are we going to do this? And our JTAC, our combat controller, he's like, all right, dude, let me tell you what we're going to do. I got two Apaches. They're going to fly in over the road and they're going to start gunning up things. We are going to run behind the Apaches to where you think Abe is at because I'm pretty sure he's there and we're going to recover these last two Afghans and we're going to leave because the Afghans wouldn't go back after him. They were like, inshallah. It's like, no, those are soldiers. We're going to go get them. Nobody gets left behind. I don't care. So he's like, all right, Apaches inbound. You guys ready? We got one shot at this because we're not worried about them running out of ammo. They're almost bingo on fuel. That's a bad thing. Say so like, all right, all right, one, two, three, boom. Patches are coming in, guns are going, 2.75 rockets, whatever. And it's like, all right, we're good, Run. And I'm like, please, leg, hold up, please, leg, hold up. <laughs> if there's one time I need you to hold up, it's right now. And we're just sprinting down this road. And we get to the bridge, and I look down in the ditch, and Abe and then our missing commando are there, and they're dead. So we, um, <clears throat> yeah, so- We recover Abe, and it was hard. I mean, uh, 200-pound man, um, soaking wet in blood. Blood is very slick, and it's very hard to grab onto a person, especially when you're getting shot at. So we get the command, and we get Abe out, and we start to move back. And we've turned the tide. Air support is pounding the crap out of Taliban reinforcements coming in. So we get everybody back. So now we have all men. Nobody got left behind. And we pulled back. And uh, we're able to get back to our fire base. And at the end, uh, we had 18 um, Afghans wounded in action, 10 Afghans killed in action, and four Americans wounded in action. So we caught the dragon. (laughs) Man, (laughs) it just,
1: it boggles my mind. I mean, in the sense, I know you mentioned no man left behind, but
0: were there any points where they're like, look, every American's accounted for, we're good? So I've served with some Afghans that would have died 5,000 times over again to recover an American, 100%. No, there was never a question. The question was brought up about, hey, is there another way to do this? But there wasn't. We have air support on our side right now. It's gonna be dark in a couple hours. We have to do this now. We have to go get them now. Yes, it's dangerous. It doesn't matter. No one gets left behind. So no, it was never about, hey, should we go get them? It was, hey, how do we do them? How do we go and get them? And that's what the argument ensued until finally the JTAC was just like, hey guys, look, patches are inbound now, let's go. It's like, roger that. Combat controller said, let's go, we're, we're fucking moving. And um, because they do, they control all air. They're brilliant. They're a death orchestra. They're heroes. You know, it finally got to a point to where it's like, hey, look, man, you can plan something out. Excruciating details in the first round that's fired across your face, that plan is the shit. You know, and I'm pretty sure it could be the same in corporate, too. You can plan something out to excruciating, you know, details until that first frago or fragmentation comes in where there's like, well, we didn't think that was going to happen. Then that whole plan is gone to shit. Sometimes you just have to say, hey, bring in the Apaches. We're sprinting behind them. We're going to go get these dudes. So, no, whether we were going to get them, that wasn't the question. Um, it was how.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, so you, you catch the dragon. <laughs> Are you ready to go home?
0: <laughs> no because now I want to catch his brother. And so I just kept riding this combat high and riding it and riding it and riding it and I went back to Afghanistan. That was 16. I went back 17, 18 and 19 as a Green Beret. And then I went back 20 and I got home in July of 21 as a um as a defense contractor and you're just still looking for that high, that combat high, that that distinct 762 crack that just puts your adrenaline into a ride that no drug will ever give you, and it's that I survived. Now I want to survive again and again and again, and it's, it's dangerous. I don't know how it works, but I do know that it is an issue right now with veterans, and it's a very dangerous issue um, because there are people that are trying to get that high through any means available, including wrecking and losing their own lives to do it
1: bringing things to present day and mm-hmm. where your passion lies today, or even maybe just perhaps sense of purpose, because I mean, you're still a young guy, right? You're in your yeah. 40s, yeah. you've got a lot of life ahead of you, yeah. and it, it's hard to look back and say, hey, I'm gonna try to keep amplifying what, <laughs> what I've just gone through, right? Yeah,
0: and, so I've actually thought about this quite a bit, and people think it's funny, but it's the truth. I have no idea what I wanna do when I grow up. I don't, I've been military and in government and it up since I was 18 years old, Being given a task condition and a standard, like who is Ryan Hendrickson? I mean, my job was a Green Beret, but I am not a Green Beret. I just was a Green Beret as a job. It's just a job. It's a title. It doesn't mean anything. I have these experiences, but everybody has experiences. Okay, cool, man. So you've been shot at. Congratulations, bud. So there's a lot of people. So who am I? And so I'm on this journey to figure out like, Who do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to be when I grow up kind of thing? And I know mental health is very important to me. I've lost a lot of friends to suicide. And then I see these issues going on in our country and these unanswered questions that our veterans are going through. Was it worth it? You know, what was it for? And all this other stuff. And the underlining demon with all of this, whether you're military or first responder or whatever, or someone who COVID is just. Beat you down is mental health. It's that demon. And after I lost my buddy to suicide, I definitely started to think like, well, I could easily have been one of the 22 a day myself because I had a mental point in my life when I was like, maybe it's better if I'm not here. You don't really overcome it, but I was able to understand it to where I can make myself a better man. That's one thing that a lot of people don't understand is you'll see people they'll have this problem that happened to them. The fact of the matter is, is you can never undo the past. It will always be there. You can never make something not happen. It will always be a part of you. What we don't focus on enough is how do I adapt my life? How do I make myself better for this situation that I'm having a lot of issues overcoming right now? That's what we don't focus a lot on. A lot of people, they just wanna forget about it, like it never even happened. And a lot of those techniques are through drinking, through drugs, and a bunch of different outlets that are temporary because this happened. How do you quit blaming, as in my case, blaming everybody for you, you know, for your past, when in fact, guess what? <laughs> You're not the first guy to ever have a hard past. You won't be the last guy. And this is what I'm trying to do now is you start to use these situations to maybe help people because as you help people, you better yourself you know, better yourself because I'm going to go do this and that's going to make me a better man. Not for me. Some people may, but I am starting to figure out that by helping people, it helps me. If that kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of people that will say that the, the best way to impact other people is to start with yourself and be just a positive influence, an example of what, what is
0: possible. Yep. Right? And the best way to impact people is because you've been there. You can't talk to a guy that hasn't been there. It's like, well, no, no, no. I've never, I've never thought of suicide before, but I can tell you how not to think of it. Like, man, no, get away from me, dude. Let me talk to somebody who he's been in the dungeon. He's been to that point to where he's like, you know what, this is actually an option. That's a very dangerous point to be at because I've been there. And it's now, how do we not get to that point? Yeah, life is hard. It is, it's really hard. But guess What? No one said it's going to be easy. And part of my stance about it, it's understanding. The minute you understand that you don't deserve shit, nobody owes you shit, you're not entitled to anything, life is hard and sometimes ugly and sometimes very brutal. And guess what? Just because you overcame this doesn't mean you're not going to get hit with something ever again. Oh, and by the way, don't forget, life still doesn't owe you anything. Work for it. The minute you understand that, the minute you can adapt that life can be ugly and it's going to chew you up and nobody cares. That's when life starts to become beautiful. That's when you can actually really start to live and help people is when you understand that nothing is free. And guess what? Whether you like it or not, no one cares. So Ryan, as we come to a
1: close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, <laughs> what, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: So, being a game changer to me revolves around the we mentality, not the me. You can do great things in your life as a singleton or a solo or you as a person. Look at everything I've done. But to be a game changer, I believe that game changers are the ones that look at everything we've done. We, not me. Team mentality.
1: I want to give a huge thank you to Ryan Hendrickson for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Ryan said that life can be hard, ugly, and sometimes brutal. The harsh truth is that we're entitled to absolutely nothing. But when we reframe our perspective and accept responsibility for our outcomes, we can transform ourselves from victims into heroes. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Ryan Hendrickson, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time for a very special 100th episode of the Game Changing Attorney podcast.
0: In the jungle today, a lion will be born. And that lion is the king of the jungle just because he or she's a lion. The same day, a sloth will be born. Okay, same day, same jungle, same deal. That sloth is so fucked, you can't even describe it because he's a sloth. All he can do is barely muster up enough energy to come down the tree, grab some berries, go to the bathroom and go back up and go to sleep.
1: That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.